Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Thank you for setting your podcast out, 14th and G. I am your host, Dean Hinkson. Volatility is everywhere these days, culturally, politically, economically. Uh, We see it in runaway inflation and everything from the price of gas to chicken wings. But one set of prices has fallen, and that's for cryptocurrency, a hallmark of our digital age. Digital currencies and the blockchain technology underpinning them, many say, are here to stay. But the most popular, Bitcoin, is down 70% in price since its peak last November. The tide is going out, and lenders overleveraged on crypto are filing for bankruptcy. Crypto markets have been hacked in thefts of billions of dollars, but my guest today says fear not. Digital assets are not only here to stay, digital currencies will be part of your vibrant financial future. Indeed, they will be the future of money. Rick Edelman is ranked number one as an independent financial advisor by Barron's. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author. He's also a much more seasoned broadcast professional than I, your humble host. And he's got a new book out, The Truth About Crypto. And I'm so glad he's here today. Rick, welcome to 14th and G. It's my pleasure, Dean. Thanks for having me. Rick, uh, your book is terrific. Uh, It's a great explainer of cryptocurrency and digital currency in general. I come away saying you are an evangelist for cryptocurrency. Uh, Is that true, and why are you? Uh, I I think that might be fair to say, which is not the same, however, as saying that I believe everybody ought to buy Bitcoin. Those are really two separate conversations. But I am an evangelist of this technology. Blockchain technology is the most revolutionary tech since the invention of the Internet, and it's going to transform commerce on a global scale over the next decade and more. Rick, there's two parts here to cryptocurrency, to digital assets. There is this underlying technology of the blockchain, uh, this idea of an incorruptible ledger, uh, and then there's what everybody's familiar with, particularly with Bitcoin. There's the token or the coin uh, that's traded that has some sort of value. Talk first. You did. It, I thought it was really fascinating. You 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 laid out a really good analogy of how we go through the mortgage process and how the ledger technology of blockchain simplifies and clarifies that sort of trust-based economic process. Well, we first have to understand and acknowledge that money makes the world go round. You know, and, and the only way money works is for us to keep records of it, keep keep track of it. And that's what books and records are all about. Businesses do this with profit and loss statements. They track their income, they track their expenses. Oh, wait, so do we, as ordinary households. Right. We, we track our income, we track our expenses. We do it in our checkbook, we do it with an Excel spreadsheet, and businesses do this with their accounting records. The problem with these books and records is that they are closed, meaning the only people who get to see them are people who have permission to see them. Nobody looks at my checkbook unless I say it's okay. Nobody can see your Excel spreadsheet unless you send it to them. And corporations don't allow anybody to see their books and records unless they're a government auditor, for example. Uh, And there are all kinds of public rules about those disclosures because we know that since these are closed systems, they're permissioned, you can create a second set of books. This is why Al Capone went to prison. (laughs) And this is why we don't trust these books and ledgers. So we hire accountants to do all this record keeping. And then we hire auditors to verify what the accountants did. And then we hire government examiners to look at what the auditors said. It's very, very expensive, $120 billion a year to do all of this 
record keeping. And look at how it transpires into a mortgage. Everybody's got that experience of buying a home and what a nuisance it is. You have to believe that the seller of the house really owns the house, that that deed is in their name, free and clear title. Right. Well, just like our books and records, I don't know if I trust you when you tell me you're the seller of the house. So what do I do? I hire a title settlement company, do a title search, and then I pay for title insurance. I spend thousands of dollars adding months to the transaction. It serves no useful purpose. It doesn't add to the value of the house. It just gives me the confidence because I am forced to trust you. And as Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify. Right. right? Trust only goes so far. And this is the cumbersome way we do business with each other. We don't trust each other enough, and that's why we have all these checks and balances. Along comes blockchain. This new technology eliminates the need for trust because instead of my having to trust you, the transaction is now cryptographically authenticated. It is proven that that deed is yours and you're able to sell it to me. And because of that, I no longer need that title insurance company. I don't need to do a title search. I save thousands of dollars and I radically accelerate the transaction. In the future, and I mean like within the next five to eight years, you're going to be able to move into the house the day you sign the contract. Not 90 days later. You'll be able to qualify for the mortgage within minutes as opposed to months because it'll be very easy for the lender to cryptographically prove that your income is what you say it is and your assets are what they say they are. They're not going to have to do all of this nonsense paperwork for you to prove that you really do have the money and the income that you say that you have. And so the way the blockchain works, it's not only publicly available and open sourced, it's the way the blockchain evolves, it's incorruptible. It can't be That's right. because of the mathematical algorithm That's right. that powers it, you can't go back and change it. Exactly. Once the data is on the blockchain, it is immutable. It's permanent. It cannot be copied, can't be changed, can't be erased. And that is what gives us the confidence of its legitimacy. This allows businesses to operate faster, cheaper, safer, with greater transparency and inclusion on a global basis. It's extraordinarily exciting. Okay, that's the vegetables portion of the blockchain. The sexy part of the blockchain is the token, the coin. Right. You get this by mining the blockchain with performing the mathematical calculation through a computer that generates the token. In the original Bitcoin blockchain, yes. There are other methodologies that use a staking method and others, but for the most part, you're right. Mining is a key way. And that mining process is the authentication process. That's how the data gets confirmed, and once confirmed, is placed onto the blockchain where it's there permanently. When you have a computer network, you're sort of in a race to get that next part of the blockchain to generate the coin or the token. Every 10 minutes, the data gets authenticated. The new Bitcoins are produced through the mining process. And yes, you're in a race. Whoever validates the data first wins the new Bitcoin that's being produced every 10 minutes. So yes, a lot of companies are using many, many computers in order to do the calculations as fast as possible to win those Bitcoin mining rewards. And so Rick, here's the billion dollar question. Here's what people don't understand and people don't trust. Why does that token or coin have any value whatsoever? It's because the coin is the means of conveyance for using the Bitcoin blockchain. We all agree the value, the benefit of the blockchain. It allows the data to be permanent and secure and immutable. We get that. Well, how do you get the data onto the blockchain? You have to use Bitcoin. That's the means of conveyance. I'll give you the analogy of a casino. If you want to play blackjack, you can't use dollars. 
they force you to convert your dollars into casino chips. Right. With the chips, you play the games, and when you're done, you convert the chips back to dollars when you walk out. That's the same as blockchain. If you want to put data onto the blockchain, you can't do it with dollars. You've got to do it with the means of conveyance. In Bitcoin blockchain's case, it's the Bitcoin coin. On the Ethereum blockchain, it's Ether. On the Polkadot blockchain, it's Polkadot, etc. So different blockchains have their own tokens or coins. And the reason that these have value is that if I, as a user, want to put my data on the blockchain, I have to use Bitcoin to do it. Well, if a lot of people want to put data on the Bitcoin blockchain, a lot of us want to buy Bitcoin because that's the means of conveyance. There's a limited number of Bitcoins. And as the number of users grows, because increasing numbers of us want to put data on the blockchain, well, it's law of supply and demand. Lots of users, a big demand for the coin and a limited supply of them, naturally makes the price rise. Bitcoin is, and I'm sticking with Bitcoin because that's the one everyone knows. It's, it's the most developed, the most familiar to most Americans. It's the oldest, it's the biggest, it's half the total market. Yeah. When it was really born of the financial crisis, in fact, yes. the, the Genesis block, the original block in the Bitcoin blockchain is a reference to an article on bank bailouts right. uh, related to the mortgage crisis. And what's crisis. interesting to note about that, Dean, is that that original block of data placed onto the blockchain wasn't a financial transaction. It was a newspaper article. It was strictly data. And that's the point people need to understand. Blockchain and Bitcoin is not necessarily about money. It's about data. We want to upload data. We want to be able to view the data. We want to be able to transmit the data. We want to be able to secure the data. And blockchain lets us do all of that faster, cheaper, and safer than any other technology yet built. All right, so now we have these Bitcoins. You can either mine them and own them directly. Mm -hmm. Most people own them through a service like right. a wallet or a crypto exchange. What's the relationship of the Bitcoins to any other financial asset? What's the same and how does it differ? Well, Bitcoin is the first new asset class in 150 years. The last time we had a new asset class was the discovery of oil in the 1850s. And along comes Bitcoin 170 years later, and it's now giving us yet another investment opportunity on top of the existing ones already available. Stocks, bonds, real estate, gold, oil, commodities, etc. We now had Bitcoin and digital assets to that laundry list. And most investors believe in diversification. Most investors are interested in new emerging technologies. Uh, and this represents the latest opportunity. The last time we had an opportunity like this was the internet in the 1990s. Most of us missed that. We all regret not investing in Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon <laughs> back in the 90s. Well, here's another chance. I don't think you want to blow it this time. Yeah. So you spend a lot of your time talking to investment advisors, uh, large financial institutions. There's really a dearth of information right. of how to engage here. There's a lot of uncertainty on the regulatory front. There's also some pushback against cryptocurrency. You hear the argument that it consumes too much energy. You hear the argument that it's too vulnerable to hackers. You answer some of these charges in the book. Yeah, there are a lot of objections to this new emerging asset class. Many of the objections are uh, legitimate questions that need to be asked. What I discover is that most of these questions are based on old or erroneous information. Some of them are legitimate and need to be addressed and resolved by the crypto community. Some need to be tackled by our regulators and legislators. And there's a large effort underway now to create that regulatory and legislative clarity. There's already a lot more rules in place than most people realize. 
And my job really is to serve as that crypto education resource. As you noted, Dean, crypto was not created by the financial services community. It was created by an outside uh, group of technicians. You know, these are techno geeks uh, who are just playing with spreadsheets and dealing with data and who really objected to the economic crisis of 2008 and tried to come up with a better mousetrap. And their experiment, Bitcoin is going to be a replacement currency for the world. That was the experiment right. in 2009. That experiment failed. But everybody then began to realize, well, although the notion of Bitcoin being a global currency failed, the technology that allowed Bitcoin to exist, blockchain, that's cool. And there's a lot of there there. And because this didn't emanate from the financial services industry, the financial services industry has been largely ignorant of it. They've been dismissive of it. They've just been not terribly concerned or, or caring about it. But now, 12, 13 years later, everybody's pretty much recognizing this is a pretty cool tech. It has broad application in virtually every industry on the planet. But in order for it to get truly immersed, we need better clarity of its rules. We need to know how we're allowed to use it. We need to understand the tax implications from an investment management perspective. We need to know what we're allowed to do and how we're allowed to do it so that we can craft for our clients the strategies and give them the advice that they need. And what I've discovered is that in my 10 years in this uh, crypto space, and you know, although I'm, I'm a financial advisor for the last 40 years and built the largest investment advisory firm in the country with $300 billion in assets, I got started in crypto back in 2012 and quickly began to realize not only is this transformative, most folks in the financial services industry are unaware of it. And because there's no training for it. Right. We didn't get any classes of it in MBA school. We didn't uh, have any seminars on this. And so I've created the company, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, DACFP, to serve as that crypto education resource. And we are now the premier outlet for helping financial service firms craft their crypto strategy to help them understand what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do, what we're not sure they're allowed to do, to help them understand how to go about this that is consistent with their firm's culture, that isn't disruptive to their business and their practice management, that allows them to help their advisors serve their clients in a way that is helpful and beneficial and not threatening or risky, not risky from a regulatory perspective or a reputational one or from one that risks their revenue. And what most quickly discover is that this is easier than they thought, safer than they thought. There's a huge amount of consumer and investor interest in this, and they can grow their businesses very effectively without necessarily recommending or endorsing Bitcoin, but to simply acknowledge it's a new asset class that is worthy of consideration in your development of asset allocation. Because you've seen Wall Street titans like Warren Buffett, like Jamie Dimon. Uh, you've got a chart in your book. I was We were talking before the show that you got a great chart in your book that tracks the valuation of Bitcoin going up and up and up, and Jamie Dimon quotes sort of trashing it uh, all the way. Every time he trashes it, the price rises. Uh, he hasn't trashed it lately. So, Jamie, say something negative so the price <laughs> will go up. Uh, so, uh, yeah, th and this is reflective, as Jamie says, I don't know anything about Bitcoin because where would he get the knowledge? You know, and, and this is the problem in the financial services community. Yet at the same time, these massive companies, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, uh, Citi, they are all building massive Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto businesses, not only because there's a huge potential but because there's massive client demand, both institutional investors as well as retail investors. And those who engage in this first are going to be the big winners. That's my primary message. Our job in the financial services industry, first and foremost, is to protect our clients. If we don't engage in digital assets on their behalf, then where are they going to go? 
Well, we know where they're going. The FTC says last year, American investors lost a billion dollars to crypto fraud because those investors couldn't get help from their advisors because their firms wouldn't let them. Well, the consumers wanted to buy crypto, so they went on internet chat rooms and they got caught up in scams and frauds and lost a billion dollars. By us not engaging in the financial industry, we're not doing our job of serving and protecting our clients where there's a huge opportunity to build wealth as opposed to horrifically watching people lose it instead because of their own poor execution. The assets are being owned. They're just not being captured in right. a managed portfolio. There's a trillion dollars worth of digital assets that is not being managed by the financial services industry. That's $10 billion worth of asset management fees that Wall Street is not earning simply because they don't know how to engage. And my job is to show them how they can in a way that is compliance safe that doesn't risk their reputation, doesn't put them at the ire of regulators. There are plenty of ways to engage that allow you to serve your client and by doing so, build your business, generate new assets and new revenues. Rick, you said the experiment of cryptocurrency, of Bitcoin being a replacement for a sovereign currency of the US dollar, the Japanese yen, the Chinese yuan, that that experiment uh, has obviously failed. Uh, digital currency or cryptocurrency is not a challenge to sovereign currencies, and that's because countries are going to adopt their own digital currencies, which China's doing right now. That's exactly right. And this is why it's not a question of if, but rather when and how. The U.S. government is firmly behind the notion of digital assets. The president issued in March the first ever executive order from the White House calling for the full force of the federal resources for the development and innovation and support of digital assets and a central bank digital currency, a CBDC. Elizabeth Warren has come out uh, just in the last month saying it's time for us to have a CBDC. Janet Yellen, the head of the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, has said the same thing. Maxine Waters has said we're in a digital space race and we can't be left behind. Ted Cruz says he wants to make Texas the oasis for planet Earth of blockchain, Bitcoin, and digital assets. Capitol Hill gets it. The White House gets it. The Fed gets it. They've hired their first ever chief innovation officer charged with figuring out how to get a CBDC to the marketplace. China's way ahead of us. The Hoover Institution released a massive report, 227 pages a few months ago, talking about how the Chinese digital currency is a threat to democracy on a global scale because so goes the money, so goes governments, and so goes political strategy. So we are behind the curve because China has leaped ahead. Most governments around the world are developing a CBDC at the moment, and we have to get on with it. We are the world's reserve currency, and if we're going to maintain our dominance, we need to go digital. The entire world has gone digital in every industry you can think of, except for money. It's still paper. It makes no sense. I mean, when's the last time you used paper currency? Other than tipping a bellman or a valet handing a buck to somebody I who's homeless. I gave my stepchildren uh, cash for Christmas and they don't know what to do with it. And they looked at you <laughs> like, what is this? They, right. they even know what, they don't have a bank account. What do they do? They want a gift card. They want Venmo and PayPal. You know, our, our checks from our employers are digitally deposited, right, to our bank account. Our social security check, pension check, digitally deposited. You pay your bills, mortgage, utilities, car payments. You pay them online automatically through your bank account. We're not using cash anymore. And yet the government still prints it. Makes no sense. We need to create a digital form of the U.S. dollar, and the Fed is working on it very aggressively. It's going to require Congress to weigh in and, and assist in this activity. The White House is fully behind it. Many, many members of Congress are as well. And 
probably by 2025, certainly by 2030, it'll be in place, not only here in the U.S., but by virtually every government around the world. Because the danger here, I believe you said, the cell phones that Huawei and other Chinese manufacturers ship out ship with a digital wallet. Containing the Chinese digital currency. And as they ship these to Africa, for example, that will become the currency that will become native to them, and it won't be the U.S. dollar. This creates huge concern, not only for our economic dominance, but a huge concern for democracy because the Chinese will be in control of that digital currency with their authoritarianism that is a real threat to democracy on a global scale. We have to get on with it and do it in a real hurry. This is playing out on two fronts. You've, you've got the currency front and the need for the digital dollar, and you've got the regulatory aspect of cryptocurrency and other digital assets. Uh, at the SEC, Chairman Gary Gensler, a bit of a crypto expert himself, uh, has been a roadblock to yes. establishing uh, exchange-traded funds. Right. For Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, uh, you have legislation introduced on the Hill. Uh, that seemed to be a turf war that would split the jurisdiction over to the CFTC, the, the Commodities Future Trade Commission. And this turf war is a classic Washington, D.C. fight where nobody else cares. I mean, I, most in the financial services industry, at the end of the day, we don't really care who the traffic cop is. Just tell us that there is a traffic cop and tell us what the rules of the road are. We'll we'll play by the rules. Just tell us the rules. What we hate is regulation by enforcement, and that is uh, too often the approach that regulators use, and it's not beneficial to industry. It's not helpful to consumers and investors. So please tell us who the regulator is and let that regulator give us the rules of the road so that we can operate within them. At the moment, there's a huge amount of folks sitting on the sidelines waiting for those rules to be created. There are lots of rules in place now, but not enough not with sufficient clarity that will enable most of the institutions and most of Wall Street to engage freely in the open capital markets environment. We need to get that done. We need to get it done as quickly as possible. I'm confident within the next couple of years, all of that will be in place. Uh, but it is unconscionable that it has taken this long and that today, as you noted, Gary Gensler, uh, the head of the SEC, is still resisting the approval of a Bitcoin ETF. He's not protecting consumers. As I mentioned, they lost a billion dollars in their bad attempt to buy crypto. They got caught up in scams. If an ETF had been in existence, financial advisors would be able to assist and help and advise clients, protecting them from those scams, the very scams that Gary Gensler and others would love to help avoid. So the SEC has to get on with it. They can't stop this any more than the government was able to stop drinking during the prohibition. The only thing the government can do is make it more expensive, more cumbersome, more risky. And that's what they've done by saying no to a Bitcoin ETF. Investors are still buying it, but they're buying products that are riskier and more expensive and less liquid than an ETF would alternatively be. And that's not serving anybody. Rick, what are we learning from the current moment? This has been styled as the crypto winner. So I said in the introduction, Bitcoin's down 70% off its highs. It touched close to 70,000 back in November of last year. It's gone as low as 18,000 in recent weeks. This is an extraordinary amount of volatility, but it's hanging in there. The, the over-under seems to be about 20000 uh, for a Bitcoin. But what are we learning? There's, there's a temptation for a lot of people to say, aha, I told you so. The only people who say that are the people who hate Bitcoin in the first place. They're using this as a evidence of their position of being correct. The fact is that this is the fourth time that Bitcoin has fallen 70% or more uh, from its high since its inception. This is not at all unusual. And in fact, you want to have some fun, uh, Dean? Go pull up the stock chart of the first 12 years of Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google. Was there volatility? 
you'll see that they look those charts look exactly the same as Bitcoin. This is a new emerging technology. And during those early days, it's bumpy as we're figuring it all out. So to point solely to Bitcoin and saying, aha, down 70 percent. Hey, I got news for you. Netflix is down 75 percent. Nobody's talking about banning Netflix. So we have to put this into proper perspective. This is the nature of technology. It's a nature of innovation. And this is all new and we're figuring it out. Everybody's annoyed that it isn't working more smoothly and more easily. We have to remember that when the Model T was introduced, it was originally driven on roads built for horses. It took a while to build highways that allow... Exactly. And that's where we're at now. Innovation always comes before regulation. It was only after the Model T came out. Once we had cars on the road, that's when we started to have car accidents. That's what led to the need for rules of the road. You drive on the right. Let's paint white lines on the road. Let's have speed limits. That's where we are with crypto. We'll get there. Those who want to wait, fine. Go ahead and wait. You'll eventually own it just because it'll be a natural part of the investment landscape. If you want to invest in it now, you're taking greater risk. It's going to be really bumpy, but that's where the big profits are made. Rick Edelman, uh, author of The Truth About Crypto. It debuted on Amazon at number one. Uh, It's really a fascinating topic, and I hope you'll come back again sometime and uh, see where we are. Thanks for joining me on 14th and G. It's been my pleasure, Dean. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.